Hey, and welcome to episode five of the Teen Screen Feminism podcast. I'm Athena Bellis. A note on today's episode today I will be mentioning pregnancy and abortion. This episode also discusses a horror film and it brings up some themes related to violence. While I don't discuss these topics in detail, listener discretion is advised, and spoilers for all the films under discussion also abound. So, I am cheating just a little bit by skipping from the very late 1950s, where we left off in episode four, and launching right into the 70s in this week's episode. But because blue denim was so very much on the cusp of the late 50s and the early 60s, I just decided to go full steam ahead into the following decade. And I hope you'll forgive me for that. Um, But the 1970s are just a fascinating time for on-screen representations of pregnancy, particularly because in the US context, the Roe versus Wade decision was being made in 1973. And the film we're talking about today was released just one year after this. So it's so topical. Black Christmas is the film that we're talking about today. It's so much fun. If you haven't seen it, highly recommend. And this film is set mostly in a college sorority house in a suburban neighbourhood. The girls who live in this house start getting disturbing prank phone calls from a mystery man, and these phone calls are both sexually and violently explicit. The calls are mostly about two overlapping themes, sexual degradation and murder. This caller sort of crudely describes sex acts that he says he will force on these girls and then in the next breath he describes how he's going to kill them and these descriptions escalate in explicitness over time. So while that's happening, the girls are all preparing to leave the house for their winter break and some of the residents are taking these calls more seriously than others because there's so much going on and a lot of excitement about their holiday preparations. And throughout this entire film, we get a lot of point of view shots from the perspective of the caller, who starts killing off the residents one by one. And as a small sort of side note, before I saw this film earlier this year, I thought that this technique of using the point of view shot to record the perspective of the killer, at least in the American teen slasher genre, originated with John Carpenter's Halloween. But Black Christmas actually predates that film by four years, so it's interesting to know that now. And its use in Black Christmas is, I think, particularly creepy and effective in creating a mood of dread because it's attached to such a highly sexualized form of violence against women. And as the film unfolds, it becomes clear that he's actually making the calls from the sorority house's attic, playing into that sort of classic slasher film theme, where the killer is in the house, unbeknownst to its inhabitants. Hello? Who is this? It's Jess. 
Uh, Miss Bradford, uh, this is Sergeant Nash. Are you the only one in the house? No. Phil and Barbara upstairs asleep. Why? All right. Now, I want you to do exactly what I tell you without asking any questions, okay? No questions. Now, just put the phone back on the hook, walk to the front door, and leave the house. What's wrong? Please, Miss Bradford, please just do as I tell you. Okay. I'll get Philip. No, 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 don't do that, Jess. Jess, the caller is in the house. The calls are coming from the house. Jess! Okay, so while that's all happening, the main character, whose name is Jess, is grappling with the fact that she is pregnant and wants to get an abortion. Her boyfriend, Peter, reacts very badly to the news. When Jess refuses to accept his offer of marriage, which he hopes will in turn stop her from getting her termination, he becomes really, really angry. Jess is rejecting the roles of wife and mother that he is pressuring her to take on, and is instead focused on her studies and her future career prospects. Throughout the entire film, Jess and the audience question if Peter is actually the caller slash killer, motivated by his anger towards his girlfriend and his desire to control her. And while it's revealed towards the end of the film that Peter is in fact not the killer, we do spend a lot of time thinking about his potential for violence. And we're also encouraged to spend a lot of time questioning his anger in the face of Jess's agency and determination over her own body. Jess, let's get one thing straight. You are not going to abort that baby. Peter, you're not going to tell me what I can and cannot do. Jess, if you try getting an abortion... I think you better leave. If you try getting an abortion... I said get out. You're going to be very sorry. In my reading of the film, this film never questions Jess's decision to terminate the pregnancy, which is quite different to the other films we've explored so far this season. But the main question is about... Peter's violent unwillingness to accept her decisions about how she's going to deal with her own body and the potential harm that that unwillingness might bring into Jess's life. So Peter's violent reaction, in other words, is what is under the microscope here. And further to this, Jess is also really quite a likable character. She's very clever, interesting, resourceful. She's a survivor character. And Peter, on the other hand, is a huge douchebag, quite unsympathetic. He's really explosive and irrational and rude and controlling. So this dynamic deviates significantly, I would say, from previous films that we've looked at in this podcast, where the pregnant girl is scrutinized by various authority figures, you know, her parents, the police, her boyfriend, the school, and so on. And in that scrutiny is shamed. She's sort of made out to be this sort of 
pathological creature, and at the end of the film, she is finally controlled by men, oftentimes through marriage, or as we've seen, there's also the possibility of punishment through death for her sexual transgressions. Richard Knoll provides a really fascinating account of how the Canadian producers of Black Christmas set out to create a blockbuster film that would break through to the American market. And there was a real focus on the youth market, and particularly female youth. Their foray into horror was bolstered by the successes of films like Rosemary's Baby in 1968, and then of course The Exorcist in 73, as well as a number of key films that were huge successes, due in large part to that ever-growing youth market. Films that were important for that were ones like The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, both of those are from 1967, and Easy Rider from 1969, among several others. So Black Christmas really pursued and tried to appeal to the female youth market through a number of strategies in their marketing. Noel writes that the film's producers made a series of decisions to make their film marketable to a generation of politically informed female patrons that were perceived to subscribe to the central tenets of second wave feminism as they entered adulthood in the early 1970s. That's a direct quote from Noel's research. So one of the strategies that was used was to tap into the success of films like Love Story and The Way We Were by including that relationship in crisis plotline. And another of the strategies that they employed was to have the heroine openly and unapologetically discuss her desire to have her pregnancy terminated and for her to still be a really sympathetic heroine rather than being pigeonholed as a bad girl. So in the wake of Roe versus Wade being decided the year prior, the narrative thread was seen as a way to connect with a young female audience that was pro-choice and really ready for and perhaps craving stories that reflected this. An additional strategy that Noel points out in the research was simply to have a film with female protagonists, and this was particularly notable during this period where you might notice, if you look back over that decade, youth films were really dominated by male protagonists and male coming-of-age stories, particularly, I would say, in the American context. One of the really interesting things about this film is how it doesn't adhere to some of the gendered tropes that we've come to associate with a slasher film, particularly in relation to sexuality. So often in the slasher, particularly you might say in earlier iterations of the genre, we see an innocent virginal heroine fight her way through the horrors of the film, and she's often the only one of her peer group to survive. And this character is what Carol Clover has famously dubbed the final girl. Meanwhile, the sexually active and so-called promiscuous characters, particularly the girls, are usually the first to die, and often in particularly gruesome and highly sexualized murders. In Black Christmas, however, this particular setup is subverted. In fact, it's the religious conservative girl who dies first, and the pregnant heroine Jess 
is the one who survives the sorority house murders. Although whether or not she survives after the final fade to black is still left highly ambiguous. So in these various ways, these shifts away from the theme of punishing or on the other hand needing to redeem the young pregnant character that we've consistently seen in the films discussed in previous episodes of this season of the podcast. So it's it's a really interesting shift here. Another way in which this particular film deviates from patterns seen in other horror films is the place of the pregnancy itself within the story. So usually it's the pregnancy itself which is the monstrous element. The pregnant body is overtaken by an evil or perhaps even alien entity. And we see that in films like Rosemary's Baby, Demon Seed, The Brood, The Astronaut's Wife and The Unborn. As Kelly Oliver writes about these sorts of films, on both the personal and social levels, women's reproductive function is imagined as excessive and dangerous. That's a direct quote from Oliver. In these films, Oliver writes, the monstrous ambiguity of pregnancy leads to a literal monster that is not human and is not of our species. The womb, as Barbara Creed tells us in her landmark study on women and horror, becomes an abject space, a space that is out of control, and Creed calls this the monstrous feminine. In the process of pregnancy, many of the women in these films become monstrous too, simply by virtue of loving and enabling their evil offspring to live, and also sometimes by becoming mad themselves, even murderous sometimes, overtaken by their apparently unnatural powers of reproduction, which in turn threaten humanity itself. In other examples of pregnancy horror, we actually see abortion as the cause of monstrosity, as in The Suckling from 1990, which I have to say is without a doubt the worst fucking movie I've ever seen in my entire life, which is saying something because I have spent a lot of time watching a lot of crap throughout my 33 years, but honestly, it really does take the cake. The Suckling is a really interesting and awful film in many, many ways. I'd be really interested to hear from anyone who has seen the film um, because I'd like to debrief about what's going on in that movie. So in that film, the aborted fetus becomes a monster, killing everyone in its path before it finds its mother and crawls back inside her, which the film presents as the right thing, I think. And in a lot of these sorts of films, women themselves are portrayed as dangerous. And when they and their reproductive capacities can't be controlled, horrifying things are seen to happen. So what's happening here is that monstrosity and maternity get linked. And perhaps this reflects cultural fears about reproduction in general and women's reproductive power more specifically. So a range of fantasies about femininity play out on these fictional pregnant bodies. 
However, as I've flagged already in Black Christmas, the pregnancy is not the source of horror or monstrosity. In a shift away from this frequently used paradigm, it's instead the male partner who instills fear and dread. The pregnancy itself is, in fact, quite surprisingly, kind of ordinary and banal. In the 2019 remake of Black Christmas, directed by Sophia Takal, toxic masculinity and rape culture becomes an even more blatant source of horror. It sort of takes that representation of Peter's horrifying toxic masculinity to the next level. And again, I'd be really interested to hear from people who've seen this remake. So in the remake, the murderers are a bunch of frat boys who try to quote-unquote reclaim the power that they believe is rightfully theirs and that they believe they've lost at the hands of feminist women on their college campus. Through a kind of black magic hazing ritual, they gain strength and power and then they're sort of physically emboldened to kill all the women on campus who have dared to defy male supremacy, which they see as their right. So it's a film that very, very explicitly situates itself in the context of the Me Too movement, calling out rape culture on college campuses. And it also is a film that provides a space to represent female rage and solidarity in the face of this oppression. Pregnancy itself doesn't even feature in this version of Black Christmas, but the right to bodily autonomy is really front and centre in the way it discusses sexual assault and other forms of violent abuse. I think it's quite an interesting remake of the 1970s original, and in some ways there's a lot to like there, but it doesn't quite land for me. I'd be interested to hear from other people what they think about this. I think the element of the black magic is kind of silly and I think it sort of takes away from some of the sense of the gravity of the horror that you get in the original of Black Christmas. So for me, that sort of detracts from the overall success of the film, but it's still an interesting one to watch, particularly perhaps as a double feature with the original because they both highlight these issues of female bodily autonomy and agency, although in sort of different ways. Next time we get together, we're going to head right into the 80s with none other than Molly Ringwald, of course. We can't do an episode about the 80s without Dear Molly, and we're going to be looking at a film from 1988, and it's a film called For Keeps. Where does pregnancy fit in the context of the teen rom-com? That's what we'll be discussing next time we get together. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And please follow us on Instagram at teenscreenfemme. This episode was researched, written, and presented by me, Athena Bellis. It was edited by the wonderful, magnificent, glorious Claire Gorn. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the podcast. I really hope you enjoyed it, and I hope to see you next time. <laughs>